0: you're a regular and you forgot your Bible, you can see it in the screen behind me or on the monitors. Starting at chapter three, I mean, um, verse three, um, the word says, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle?' When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You may be seated. A privilege
1: and an honor to be up here again, um, elaborating and expounding God's word. Um, it was interesting as I prepared on such a, a familiar story, perhaps one of the, the most well-known stories of the Bible. As I was thinking about it, I, I was hard-pressed to think of anyone that I knew that wouldn't be familiar with the David and Goliath story. The story of the ultimate underdog. Like it's, I think it's very common throughout our society. If you've ever been in a Sunday school class for any amount of time, you've heard David and Goliath. You've heard how the little guy, through God's help, comes and defeats the giant. But I don't want us to get stuck on the cute version. I don't want us to get stuck on the, the veggie VeggieTales version Right, where the little broccoli comes up and defeats the giant pickle. Like that's, that's not the way it went, as cute as that is. But there is a lot of emotion in this story. There's a lot of emotion that I think we tend to skip. I think we tend to overlook it and we just miss it. Um, in thinking about emotion, one of the strongest emotions is fear. Fear moves us. I think it hits something in the core of us, and it can trap us and paralyze us. You know, recently I read an article of uh, marketing. Ads based on fear sell far more products than ads based on anything else. An ad that says, unless you buy our product, shop at our stores, do what we tell you, then you will never be happy. You will never be successful. You will never be loved. Somehow those types of ads they, they strike us and they, they cause us to step back and, and think and then suddenly this fear overtakes us. And if we buy into the marketing campaigns, then we go and we buy that product, or we shop at this store, or we do this thing to try to to free us from this fear. So that we can be loved, we can be happy, we can be successful. But the one thing that overcomes fear, is pointed out to us in first John, which says perfect love casts out fear. That God's perfect love displayed on the cross, poured out to us, alleviates this fear. And in fact raises us up beyond its reach. And that's exactly what happens here in the story of David and Goliath. That God's perfect love reaches in to a situation overwhelmed by fear. And then brings about a tremendous salvation in the most unlikely of ways. So please pray with me before we, we dive in. Father, you have truly loved us with a perfect love. Father, you have freed us from every fear that could ever grip us. Lord, thank you for people like David who have exemplified faith in you, faith and trust and confidence in the love that you have for us. Father, thank you that people like David have modeled the way. Thank you that even in our failures, you raise up leaders to model faith for us when we are unable to. Father, thank you that you bring salvation from even the greatest enemies. Please help me to be faithful in this opportunity to speak your truth. Amen. The battle that we have, that was, was highlighted in our scripture reading, it didn't happen today. This is an ancient battle that took place millennia ago. This is before there were bullets, before there were bombs, before there were tanks supersonic aircraft, laser-guided missiles. No, back in this setting, warfare was close, personal, gruesome. The the impact, the power of the weapon didn't come from itself. It didn't come from the gunpowder inside it. It didn't come from a nuclear reaction of an atomic bomb. It came from the man holding the weapon. So the larger the man, the stronger the man, the more skilled the man the more power the weapons he held had. And so as we think about our two opponents are going to face off, it's not merely a difference of appearance. It's not merely a difference of skill. There is, in fact, almost an innate power that each person gives their weapons, as we see with Goliath. Imagine with me that back in this setting, before we had GPS and maps and satellite surveillance, we hear news that the Philistine army is coming in. They have moved onto our land and set up camp. Imagine we are filing in the ranks of the Israelite army. We go and set up camp. We follow our king and set up camp on one mountain. Across this valley is the other mountain where the Philistine army has set up camp. We're there watching their camp camp. And then we see this figure come out. And as he comes out, we see there's him and a shield bearer in front of him. But as he moves closer down the mountain towards the valley, we see that this isn't an ordinary man. We see that he looks seemingly twice as tall as anybody in our army. Not only is he tall, he's strong, he's massive. Beyond that, he's covered in the most advanced weaponry available. As we saw in our text, he's covered with bronze armor. He has a, um, a helmet of bronze on his head. This is in uh, verse 4 moving into to verse 5. He was armed with a coat of mail that weighed... 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. The coat of male armor that he had weighed approximately between 125 and 150 pounds, plus his helmet, plus his, um, the bronze leg guards he had. The head of his spear was 15 pounds, between 15 and 20 pounds of bronze. I don't know how large 15 pounds of bronze translates into a spearhead, but it's safe to say that everything about him was massive. It was intimidating. This was a giant, in fact, the epitome of greatness on a military battlefield. This was the invincible warrior standing behind or before us. And he comes out and gives this charge. He says, why should all of us fight? You send out one man. You pick your champion. Send him out to fight me. If he kills me, we will all be your servants. We will bow before you and be your slaves. But if I win, then you all will be our servants. Day and night, this taunting continued. Beyond that, it says, David, or I'm sorry, Goliath comes out and says, I defy the ranks of Israel. Now, in my study of the, the text here, this is to keep shame on. This was not merely just a challenge. This was shaming, mocking, taunting. So here we are, the army of Israel. We look, we see this ultimate warrior, seemingly invincible, standing taller and larger than any of us, with more advanced weaponry than any of us have. The king's armor is the closest that it gets, but the rest of us have nothing that even compares. And he is shaming us, taunting us. And what is worse yet is that we know we have nothing to beat him. His mockery, his shaming of us hits us all the more personally because we know it's true. We can't fight that. There's nothing for us. Day and night this continues. Forty days would come out in the morning, taunt the army of Israel. Night, come out, taunt them. Day and night, forty days. I'm sure there was a strike of fear when the Israelites first saw this giant. But I imagine day after day, any sign of hope they had left surely was quenched. As the morale of the camp faded, as rations faded, as the economy of their nation began to dwindle, as the men were gathered for war and not at home tending to crops. I can only imagine the feeling that went through the camp. I can only imagine what it's like as the men are there gathered, hearing the taunting day and night, talking amongst themselves of what they were going to do, if they had any hope at all, and what life would be like for them and their families, for their nation if they are fully conquered by the Philistines. This isn't the first time they've fought the Philistines. Before, they had even brought the Ark of the Covenant to battle so that God would fight for them and free them from their hands. But it didn't work. The Ark of the Covenant of God was captured. But God worked and plagued the Philistines so that they returned the Ark. So we know that God is powerful. We know that He is strong. We know that our God is greater than their God's, but right now it seems hopeless. You know, our king, Saul, the one that we demanded God give us, he should fight for us. And maybe that was there the first day, the first week, but now we're over a month and still our king is silent. Still, our king has not done anything to face this giant. And it's our lives hanging in the balance. It's the lives of our wives and our children at home. It's the lives of our parents back at home. You know, I personally don't know the weight of what this would feel like. I can only imagine I can imagine as I, I think about maybe the instability in our economy and whether my family will be cared for, but, but nothing to being conquered where a defeat would mean total loss of freedom. It would mean the slaughter of so many of my people, likely my own as well. I don't, I don't know the weight of this, but this is what the Israelites in our story are facing. So after 40 days of this, David, who was back at home, tending the sheep faithfully of his family, doing exactly what his father had told him. His father calls him and sends him, go to battle, take your brother's bread. His three oldest brothers were in battle there with Saul. So he comes, he leaves the sheep to a keeper to make sure that they are cared for. And then he takes what his father had given him and he comes to where the Israelites are encamped. He comes to where they are prepared for battle. And as he's looking for his brothers, he hears the rumors of the people. He hears Goliath come out and taunt and mock his people. And he's outraged. He hears it and he says, how can this continue? How dare he defy the armies of the living God? This cannot continue. This has to stop now. It seems a bit foolish. You know, here is this, this kid. He's too young to be in battle, military service. So he, he's under 20 years old. He's likely a, a, a teenager. This teenager comes out, hears the taunting of this giant, and then says, this is ridiculous. Why hasn't anybody stopped him? This can't continue. Meanwhile, all the men seasoned in war, the whole army stands in fear. And this one teenager comes up and says, why hasn't anything been done about this? This can't continue. Who is he? How can he defy the armies of the living God? It's likely Goliath stood about nine foot nine. So when I I say giant, I kind of mean it. And this teenager says, who is he? You know, as we we think about that, I I think it would be well-suited for us to think about how we would respond in the same circumstance. Even anything close. All the, the elder, seasoned people in the church They're working on this problem. They have it in view. They're working on different strategies. What should we do? How should we respond? The teenager comes in and says, Are you kidding me? You can't let this continue. Why haven't you stopped it yet? Fine, I'll stop it. You know, when he does catch up with his brothers, they they rebuke him. They say, who have you left those few sheep with? Why have you left your responsibilities to come down to watch the battle? They see him as as selfish and irresponsible. They think he merely came to watch the fight. That he wanted to come and be a spectator of the blood that would be shed. So I, I think it's fair to say that David was not viewed well for his response that he was very irrational and irresponsible and even shameful with the the weight of what was happening. But then he goes and he finds the king or his, um, his own desire to fight Goliath and stop this once and for all. Comes to the king. King gets word. He calls for him. Let's pick up, um, if you will, with me in verse, let's see, in verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before Saul and he sent for him and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and this man has has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb of the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, in the Lord be with you. David comes to the king, per king's request. He says, I will go and fight this Philistine for you. The king says, no, you won't. You're just a teenager. You're just a youth. This man has been a man of war, trained, since he was in his youth. That should have been the end of conversation. This is the king. Now, we don't have the authority hierarchy today that they had. But when the king said no, you kind of just take no and you leave. I want us to, to briefly think back to, uh, to the story of Esther. Remember, Esther is the king's wife, right? She is so afraid to go and ask anything of the king, without being called, that she throws a week-long banquet. She throws out this elaborate display of the best foods and wine and everything just so that she can go and ask the king. David does no such thing. He is determined and he's driven, and at this moment he has little concern for any social norms any preservation of himself. He goes right in and says, no, I will go fight him. God took care of me against the lion, against the bear. If they came and took one of my sheep, I got it back. If he tried to attack me, I struck him dead with my bare hands. I will go and fight this Philistine. God delivered me from them. God will deliver this Philistine into my hand as well. I think it's safe to say that God was with him since he survived that meeting with the king. and convince the king even, the king agrees, Saul says, go, the Lord be with you. And then remember that I, I mentioned Saul was the only one that even came close to having the, the type of armor and weaponry that Goliath had. So Saul, being responsible, offers all of this armor to David. He offers him all of his armor, says, wear this, Go. I imagine to give David somewhat of a fighting chance. But David refuses even that. So I haven't tested it. I can't fight in this. So he goes and he chooses a staff with his sling and five smooth stones. An interesting side note is that there were four other giants from the land of Gath. Goliath was one, there were four others. And so perhaps this was well known, perhaps David was choosing one stone for each of them. Perhaps he trusted God that much, if the others were to come, that he was prepared. Just an interesting side note. But let's see um, Goliath's response as David comes out with just his staff and his sling. In verse 42, if you'll join with me. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Certainly David had faith. Certainly David had confidence and God's love for his people and God's protection and God's care. You know, it's interesting to think about that. in as much as I feel we're called to be responsible, to plan well, this faith and confidence that David had is seemingly irresponsible. That he would come and so brazenly take just a staff, a sling and stones and go against the ultimate enemy in advanced modern warfare for the time. That he would say, no, you have defied our God. This day I will cut off your head and your people will be given to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then all the earth will know that there is a God of Israel. And my people will know that he saves, not by sword and spear through normal battle, but the battle is his and he will deliver us. That challenges my idea of faith at times that when I come to a problem, how do I respond? Do I trust that God will deliver through any means, even unlikely ones? Or do I only believe that God is powerful enough to work through conventional means and bring about the victory? I certainly believe that God does deliver us and protect us and provide for us. But sometimes... I limit that to conventional means, at least most of the time. Well, let's see if David's claims hold true. And I know you already know the story, but for the sake of continuing with this, because at this point, the armies of Israel are still quaking in fear, and I'm not sure that seeing this youth go out unclad in any type of armor doesn't even carry a sword As their champion, their entire destiny is riding on this boy. I'm not sure how I would have felt if I were in the crowd. I'm not sure if there's more hope or less hope at this point. In verse 48, When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. Remember, we're camped on two different mountains, so they're coming down into the valley to meet at the center. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines so far as Gath in the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaarim as far as Gath in Ekron. Now, if you can imagine a turnaround, a change of emotion, a change of morale, we go from the pit of despair to the heights of victory. I don't know how to convey this feeling, this change in words. To go from being hopeless and seeing our only hope riding on a teenager, going out with a stick and a bunch of rocks against this man standing double his size trained in war since a child with swords and spears and shields and then suddenly he's running down the mountain he grabs a stone he slings it and the giant drops dead and David runs possibly even faster grabs his sword cuts off his head and then I assume stands in victory I'm sure the people can't believe it. They're like, you know, they're they're blinking, making sure that they actually saw what they just saw. And then with a shout, they run and they chase this Philistine army for miles. Miles upon miles, chasing them in victory and celebration and conquering as they go. I honestly can't imagine the feeling of such a dramatic shift a dramatic shift of questioning whether you would even live to see the next month and whether your families would survive and how their lives would be as slaves. To knowing that you've just conquered the invincible enemy that was taunting you for months. This is our God. This is the God of Israel. This is the God who doesn't conquer by sword and spear. This is the God who already holds the battle in his hand. And when he deems right, when he sees fit, when we believe him and choose to acknowledge that he can, he gives it. He gives it to whomever he will. You know, honestly, I wish I could say that I had faith like David. But the reality is most of the time I don't. The reality is when I face a threat, a danger, most of the time I waver, I doubt, I question whether maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I wouldn't be in this spot, maybe I wouldn't be facing a Goliath if I had just done something a little better. Maybe, maybe I, I missed God's will a little bit. Maybe I didn't quite get it right and so I'm here now as my own fault. God is letting this happen because, because I just didn't get it right and now I, I need to learn a lesson or I, I failed somehow. This is my fault. The truth is Goliaths are out there. Truth is, in this world, we are going to face battles. And God is sovereign over them all. You know, certainly God could have led King Saul to go and fight Goliath. Certainly King Saul could have, or God could have delivered the army through King Saul, but he chose not to. The story paints an elaborate picture between the former King Saul or the current King Saul but the newly anointed King David God is drawing a picture between the king the people chose and the king that God chose the one who seemed like the perfect fit the one who looked like he was a strong leader he had all the right qualifications on the outside He was head and shoulders above the rest of the Israel people. He was strong. He was a good man of war. And then we have David, who's too young for military service. He's the youngest of his family, which meant he really had no aspirations for his life because all of his older brothers would take that. He would be left with the menial tasks. He's not trained in war. He doesn't have any weaponry, any armor. He has a stone and a sling, and his job was merely to keep the sheep. He has very little, if anything, going for him. But he was faithful. David was faithful in the little things that he was given. In keeping the sheep, in taking the bread to his brothers, in obeying his father, in caring for the things around the home. David was faithful. This is the man that God says, I will raise up and I will use. Those who are faithful... This is the most unlikely story with the most unlikely opponent and the most unlikely weapons and the most unlikely victory. But this is what God chose to use. After Goliath was conquered, the rest of Israel joined in the victory. You know, Jesus came from the line of David. God had promised that the Messiah would come from the line of David, that his throne would be established forever. Millennia later, Jesus comes and enters this world. He comes not in power, not in prestige, not in royalty, not even in fame. He comes as a very unlikely Messiah. He's a, a carpenter with no royalty or officials in his family. He's misunderstood most of the time. He's rejected at others. He's persecuted. He's jailed. He's eventually crucified. What a failure. For those who thought that he was the Messiah because of the miracles and the different things in between, they're like, he will save us, and then he goes and he's crucified by his own people. What, what a failure. We must have been wrong. We so thought he was the Messiah, but I, I guess we were wrong. He's not. We're, we're still under oppression. We have no one to save us. But then, three days later, he rises from the dead and conquers the most lethal, deadly, invincible, impossible enemy ever of all time, death the thing that strikes fear into everyone because we all die and we cannot escape it, Jesus conquered death in the most unlikely of ways through submitting himself to it. In that, just as the rest of Israel had the opportunity to join in in celebration and take part in the victory God worked through David, now we have the opportunity to join in and take part in the victory God that God has worked through Jesus Christ. We are His body, His hands and feet here on this earth to take the good news and spread it to the world. We have the incredible privilege of spreading the joy of new life. That death has been conquered. Sin no longer holds us. Now we are free. We are free by faith to live forgiven. And now we... Can join in and take part in that. Not because we did it right, not because we had any victory, but because our hero, our Savior Jesus did, and now we get to enjoy that. That is our call. Our call is to be faithful. You know, I I want us to think about what giants we might face today. Is it abortion? So, over 700,000 children aborted each year in the United States in recent years. Gangs. We have more gang members in Chicago than any other city in the U.S. Over 80% of the murders in our city are gang affiliated. ISIS. Not quite as personal. It's still a threat. There were people arrested at O'Hare Airport going to join ISIS. It's not as distant as it seems at times. You know, God chose the most unlikely of ways to win his battle, to prove his victory, to show his redemption. So, what are the unlikely ways? that we are called to fight this battle. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers of spiritual darkness. It's against the doubt and the fear that holds us captive. Against death itself. Prayer. Instead of charging into battle and fighting the abortion clinics and and fighting the, the gangs and, and fighting for those things personally and head on and with the sword, proverbially. Prayer is retreating, going alone and praying directly to God to, to bring out salvation, to work out His redemption and the beauty, the miraculous beauty of freedom and deliverance. In addition to prayer, what about love? Instead of hating our enemies and, and using all of the, the passion and the determination that hatred inspires, what if we love our enemies, as Jesus called us to? It seems so, so backwards, so unlikely, like it'll never work. What are the unlikely ways that God is calling us to fight. Not battles against people, not against flesh and blood, but against the enemy that Jesus already conquered. How can we join with him and go and continue the fight that he has already secured and won? Because now we have freedom to do that. We have freedom to stand back and pray and wait for God's deliverance and to love our enemies. You know, I always want to be the underdog. I want to be the little guy who goes, and I'm the one who conquers, and I'm the one who does it, all for God's glory, but I want to be the one to do something great. The truth is, there's very few people that God calls on to do great things. It would be a shame if I allowed my desire for greatness to prevent me from rejoicing with those that God has called to greatness. That in my desire to be great, I would find ways to divide myself from other children of God who are doing great things because I want their position instead of mine. We are all in this together. We are one body with many parts, all serving different functions. So let's be faithful in the little things that God has called us to personally. My hope is that we do not get distracted by looking at the great things. Because it's easy to do. It's easy to look at the great things and say, I want that. I need to be that. If I just do what David did, then I can be that. David never wanted the kingdom. He never pursued being a hero. He was merely faithful with his sheep, faithful in taking the bread as his father had called him to. But when God put him in a place and he saw the oppression of God's people, when he saw his God being defied and shamed and mocked, he didn't let it stand. He stood up with no regard for himself and responded. It's also good to remember that David was already anointed king at this point. It was the king's role to go and fight the battles and to lead the men into battle everything that Saul was supposed to do and didn't, David stepped in and did because he was anointed as king. This was his role. Though it doesn't seem it at the point when it actually happens, this was his responsibility. So even in this grand victory, he was merely being faithful in his responsibility. So whatever it is for us, big or small, let's be faithful in our responsibilities. And sometimes that's tough because it doesn't come with the accolades. doesn't come with the praise or the excitement and all of the, the emotional high that happens. But it's what we're called to, to be faithful. You know, we were just reminded of the financial needs of our church. Perhaps that is where we should start in being faithful in the little There's always a need for audio technicians and, um, you know, video techs and nursery workers. Perhaps that's where we start. That we be faithful in serving the needs right here, present to us. That we not get distracted by the, the big elaborate things. Let's run something. Let's start a new program. Let's do something big. Let's write a book. Let's... Anything... That would be great for God. But miss the actual things that he's called us to serving faithfully. When God sees fit, he'll bring the big things. But let's be faithful and serve here. Close with me in prayer if you would.